When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, Senior Reporter at Hort Week, and this week I'm joined by Richard Barley, Director of Gardens at Kew. Hi, Richard. Hello there. Hi, Rachel. And Bex Lane, Arboretum Supervisor. Hi, Bex. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for being on here, both of you. How are you both? Well, I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Bex? I'm very well. I've just come back from a, a little holiday in Spain, so I'm feeling well-rested. Lovely. Catching some rays. Catching some rays and looking at some Mediterranean plants. Will we see any of those at Kew? Was it kind of a research trip? Or... Uh, no, no. It was, it was very much a holiday, but I uh, did take some time to look at some plants in the wild because it just always informs best practice. Yeah, you kind of can't help yourself, can you? I can't, no, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. So how long have each of you worked at Kew? Bex, do you want to start? I have been here seven years, I think. I um, started as a volunteer. I did a diploma and then then worked in the gardens and then moved over to the Arboretum more recently. Amazing. So what were you doing before the volunteering? Um, I was working in the charity sector. Um, and before that, I was studying architecture. So quite a varied background but I'm very interested in landscapes and people. So Q really does fit the bill there. Yeah, and architecture, landscape architecture, you know, kind of exactly. hand in hand. Yeah. Richard, what about yourself? How long have you been at Q? Just coming up to my 10th anniversary at Q in early August. I will have been here 10 years. So previously I worked for 30 years with the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne and then for three years with a, an organisation called Open Gardens Australia, which is, I guess, the Australian equivalent of the National Garden Scheme. So, um, yeah, I've been here 10 years and it's been a very busy decade, I can tell you. Yeah, absolutely. So have you always worked in the garden sphere? Pretty much. Um, Yeah, well, actually, almost completely, although in my early years with the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, the work was actually mostly out in the bush, um, but but based back at the gardens doing some sort of 
analysis and things of a vegetation survey. Yeah. So you said there it's been quite the 10 years. How have the gardens changed over those years? Oh, gosh. Um, I'll give you my version and then Bex can give you hers perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> in a, a 10 years in which we have set out to, I guess, reinvigorate parts of the gardens to... to um, introduce some some new horticultural development, uh, things such as the Great Broadwalk Borders, the Children's Garden, the Ages Evolution Garden, the Kitchen Garden, um, Winter Garden, as examples. So so really investing in lifting the, the not just the diversity but also the quality of horticulture across the site. Um, mm. In addition, of course, we've, we've restored the, the magnificent Temperate House, the, the world's largest um, still existing Victorian glasshouse. So, so we've we sort of rolled up our sleeves and, and got on with a few um, uh, quite challenging projects along the way. So, so I think for the visitor coming to Kew who, who's familiar with the site, they, what they might say now compared to ten years ago, I hope, is that there's a bit more obvious horticulture and there's a, perhaps a bit more um, of an eye for design within the site. What do you think, Bex? Yeah, I would I would thoroughly agree. And I think it's been exciting because also we've done some changes, to the, made some changes to the culture in terms of make, giving more autonomy to people within the eye view of make, improving design. And I think that's made a really uh, big difference to how people are, are looking after their areas and sort of the um, drive within the teams has, has really improved as a result of that. But I came on board as um, the volunteer for the great broadwalk borders as they were being started and that was really really exciting to see that start um, and to be I just remember being completely thrilled at being able to plant um, on such an iconic sort of landscape <laughs> and being allowed to play with the plants it was amazing so um, yeah so all of those projects have really met, have made a huge difference to you. Yeah, and that's what you want volunteers to get, right, from from doing those kinds of jobs. You want to ignite that passion a bit more. Oh, absolutely. Oh, well, I mean, it, it worked. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so moving to kind of today, what are your roles and what do you kind of get up to day to day? On a day to day basis, um, I oversee uh, four main areas, the Berberistel, which uh, um, also has a winter garden, a new winter garden attached to it. The Rosa Species Collection, which is actually one of the largest Rosa Species collections. However, it's quite elderly and we're looking at redesigning that at the moment. The Mediterranean Garden and and its extension, which I believe you've seen a little bit of, Rachel. Yes, and I did. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I couldn't see you that day. But yeah, so that's quite exciting. And then the Capfoliaceae, Oleaceae, Adoxaceae beds, which is sort of a central... Um, route through the through the gardens amazing so not not that busy really no <laughs> not at all I had time to go on holiday so it's all fine <laughs> Richard what about yourself well um I guess Rachel my role uh as director of gardens I have responsibility broadly for all of the horticulture and living collections but also all of our learning and participation staff and programs our interpretation garden design volunteers um, a, a breadth of things and in addition to that um, again broadly the responsibility for the Wakehurst site although all of these departments and, and places have very capable people working within them so um, mm. so I, my, my job is often just just getting out of the way and not causing trouble um, 
there were things, I, I guess, you know, setting the longer term goals and, and just finding ways to achieve them um, is, is a lot of what I do. Yeah. And we'll touch upon some of that and also some of the things you mentioned back, like, you know, the Mediterranean extension um, in a little bit. But I wanted to touch upon firstly, um, your recent plant healthy certification. Congratulations, first off, you're the third garden in the UK to receive that. What was the process to receiving that? So that involved uh, uh, obviously quite a bit of filling in forms. It, it involved some sort of site um, assessment and, and auditing and, and just ensuring that we meet all the criteria as set out under the Plant Healthy Scheme. Mm. I mean, the thing to say about it is and, and why why we felt it was worth um, going to that trouble and, and following through on the process is that plant health and, and biosecurity broadly are incredibly important for this country and, and in fact, of course, for any country because the, the risk and cost um, that arises from uh, accidental introduction of, of pathogens, of pests, diseases, as everyone knows, can be horrendous, but not only not only sort of monetary cost, but cost to the landscape. If, if you think of the, the loss of all the, most of the elms in the 1970s, if you think of the, the hundreds of thousands of ash trees needing to be felled currently because of ash dieback, not to mention the various other things, oak recessionary moth, whatever it might be, that's come into the country often just through, um, well, sometimes inattention to, to, you know, not looking closely enough at, in inspecting plants or, or not being aware that a threat exists. Yeah. Um, so, so biosecurity we are really, really focused on and, and we need to be obviously because our, our collections are hugely important but also as we feel it's our responsibility to set that example for other organizations as well yeah absolutely um is there any benefits to you as an organization to have that plant plant healthy certification like will it help your work moving forward or it's probably it's it's a little like a um you know a, a, a quality standard um you know it's one of those things like an iso certification which which um, just verifies that actually we have our house in order. We are doing the things we should be doing. We're, we're um, you know, we're growing healthy plants. We're, we're covering off all the bases around good um, practice in terms of everything from our nurseries to our plant retail and so forth. So, so again, it's about um, it, it's a it's a health it's a health tick if you like. It's a thing that is important for an organisation such as ours to have. I think on one level it helps us also, sorry, yeah, but it uh, to, helps us to communicate with the public um, in terms of what we think is acceptable and isn't acceptable. And it get, helps give a garden staff on the ground a language to say, oh, no, actually, sorry, you can't take a cutting of that plant or whatever it is, or bring a plant from the um, garden centre through the gardens because of biosecurity and being able to actually describe to people. Because I think that the general public largely don't think don't think about it at all and um, it's really helpful for us to have that uh, reinforced so that we can chat to them about it. Yeah absolutely. Do you think that it also adds more value to what we do as an industry you know it's not just as simple as just growing plants? Oh yeah to some degree yes I mean I I think um, you know particularly post-Brexit, and, and I don't want to sort of get into the nitty-gritty of, of the 
the world of, of the UK post-Brexit, except to say that there's huge opportunity, I think, for the nursery industry within Britain to, to really step forward um, in terms of, of growing and, and supplying healthy plants, which previously perhaps people might have imported in bulk from Europe. So uh, I know people are, are all across those issues. So again, being able to verify that, that any place that's involved with plant growing or selling or, or garden meets the criteria for biosecurity and plant healthy is really important. And are you guys growing the majority of your plants? You aren't importing too much or exporting? Um, no, we're, we're not. We, we occasionally have brought in material in the past, mostly it's specific trees we've occasionally brought in from Europe for particular projects. And when we've done that, usually those trees will be quarantined away from this site for 12 mm. months and during that time they'll be inspected regularly for any signs of any pest or disease. But, um, but we don't actually do it terribly often. Um, and, you know, we do, I mean, the, the nature of botanic gardens is we do grow incredibly diverse collections of plants and the source of a lot of that stock is, is other countries. And so the, the material arrives um, perhaps as seed, possibly as cutting material and what have you, and, and all of that is done under very strict protocols in, in terms of collecting permissions and CITES permits and, and so forth. So, so we do have a fairly heavy administrative burden for anything we bring into the country but absolutely again we're we're very rigorous with all of that yeah i was going to ask about cites because some people have been experiencing issues around that severe delays plants being um destroyed things like that have you guys had any challenges around it or well not not specifically i mean the the, the laws are the laws and and one just needs to be aware of what those laws are and, and to follow the processes um, so, so we we obviously do that. We do uh, provide scientific advice to societies as well on on plant related matters. So, um, you know, so so it's quite a, a big responsibility for us. Mm, absolutely. So, climate change is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, especially public gardens, especially those who have heritage or rare collections to conserve. So what exactly is Q doing to future-proof its collections? And I, I wonder like, how the glasshouses play into that. Does that mean you have a little bit more of a safety net, so to speak? As you said, Rachel, we, we do have a lot of our plant material under glass. And you know, we have five public display houses. We have three nurseries on site here. Um, you know, we also have glass material under glass at Waco. So the point being that for that material, we can control the growing environment, be it tropical plants in, in the palm house or arid material or whatever it is, we, we can manipulate those environments. So so broadly, the challenges relating to the changing climate are for our outdoor collections and particularly for the longer-lived stock. So we're talking about trees primarily and, and longer-lived shrubs. And we've been undertaking quite a lot of research um, using some available assessment tools looking at the, the future climate for London, this part of London, and looking at um, how suited our, our trees and shrubs are for that future climate, looking at 2050 and, and 2090 or, or, or 2100, and then assessing for each of the, of the trees and shrubs we have whether it's it's more likely or less likely to be suited to that future climate. And, and what we've found is that, I mean, we have about 11,500 trees on site, for example. We, we know from our analysis of the data that 
by 2050, approximately a quarter of what we're growing currently will be out of its range of, of comfortable growing conditions. So some of those will be marginal, some will, will be definitely just struggling, if not dead. So so that gives us a really strong indicator. It, it, it sort of points at, at which parts of the gardens, which particular trees we need to start thinking about in terms of replacement. We, we know what sort of uh, landscape style we have and what we, you know, the things that are important to preserve. So, so our sort of our gaze shifts to, to parts of the world which have conditions that are better matched to the future climate in this part of the country. And that's where we look to find species that we can substitute into the landscape for the future rather than keeping on growing some of those or replacing some of the, the species from the past that are not necessarily well suited. So it's a it's actually a really fundamental and important bit of research and, and then decision making and, and one that of course we're we're also uh, sharing with other gardens and arboretum around the country because it's important that everyone understands these issues and, and you know there's nothing special about this site except you know we have a more diverse collection but you know they, the, the issues will be the same for anyone growing growing trees and shrubs around the country. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a big topic at the moment. Bex, are you able to talk through some of those plants or trees in particular that will suffer and maybe those that are going to do really well? So, yeah, so it, we can see in the plants we're growing. So in the um, Viburnum collection, in the Adoxaceae, Caprifoliaceae, Oleaceae, obviously a lot of the Oleaceae are doing really well. A lot of them come from the Mediterranean climate. Um, the viburnums have been struggling for several years now and we don't seem to be able to get enough water on them for long enough uh, to really keep them thriving. We're keeping them ticking over, but uh, many of them aren't. Obviously, there are some that, like viburnum tinus that do come from Mediterranean regions and are doing quite well. But, yeah, we are seeing some uh, losses there. Um, we're very lucky, obviously, that we have the nursery and that they're cropping anything that's looking a bit unhealthy and then they're keeping them cosseted so we're not losing collections but we are thinking about what we're planting out um, and how we might change that um yeah. also at Kew we have a very sandy soil because we're on the um floodplain essentially and that that makes a big difference as well I mean that just increases the um tendency for things to be stressed by by the drought um and that works in two ways. And yeah, yeah. so on one hand, that that may, is going to compound the issue for us. But on the other hand, when we're looking at growing, extending the Mediterranean garden and growing a larger collection of Mediterranean plants, that free draining soil means that we're not going to be worrying so much about waterlogged roots over the winter. So, right, gives with one hand and takes away with another. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was going to touch upon that expansion of the Mediterranean garden. How much are you ex- expanding it by, and what kind of are you bringing in? Um, new plants that, that aren't there at the moment or are you just expanding what's there already yeah yeah we're bringing in some new plants so the um, original collection uh, started as part of a festival where there are gardens from different areas of the world and the Mediterranean garden was popped in in 2007 I believe uh, then that some of a lot of that was as Richard said some of that was brought in from Italy some of the trees for that collection but then over time they were replaced with natural source material that was collected by um, our colleagues. The ma- main section of the Mediterranean basin of the, of the Mediterranean garden is natural so- is one of the largest collections of natural source material in, in Kew. 
um, which is really nice. And, and that has been a gradual process. But it was originally planted up with um, plants from Asia and some oh. of and the back of the mound was planted up with some uh, of Wilson's collections of rhododendrons. Um, and they obviously, they didn't like that sandy slope, mm. <laughs> which lends itself much more to the med climate. So that back section, the back of the mound, so I, for anyone who doesn't know the topography, it, the um, med garden goes up on one side of a man-made hill, which has King William's Temple of Folly on the top, and then back down onto a vista on the other side. And it's that back side of the temple that we are um, turning into the Mediterranean um, extension, so including South Africa, Chile, uh, Western Australia. Mustn't forget Australia when the boss is listening, and, uh, <laughs> and California as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was nearly, nearly really embarrassing. There. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the yeah, and so that that's nice, and it's, it is a really lovely site for that because it is a slope and it is sandy. So we are hoping that we will be able to get a lot of things growing really well. We are trying, We have some stuff that we've grown from our nursery that are natural source collection. We have some stuff that we're bringing in um, to trial it. And if that goes well, then it's worth investing in bringing in some natural source material to um, you know, support the diversity of our, our collections more. Yeah, yeah. How exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> it's looking really nice at the moment. It's enjoyed the, the um, early sunshine that we had in the beginning of June um, and we've got mm. some really lovely flowers in the South African section at the moment and lots of California poppies flowering which are always glorious. Yes absolutely sounds great. I know that education is a huge part of what Q does it's very important to Q um, so I'm kind of interested to hear about how you educate the public about you know the work that you're doing at Q but also some of these big issues that we've kind of touched upon like climate change but also what we do as an industry and kind of promoting that as well sure so so i guess if i could if i could just step in there and say we you know broadly uh, across the site um and across both our sites q and wakehurst um we we have various uh, approaches to interpretation some of it is is the traditional sort of um signs information panels and what have you um I guess what we're seeking to do is, is, I mean, some of it is certainly saying, you know, this is a X species and it comes from here or there, but, but we're trying to, to sort of put that into a bit of context and, and to, I guess, encourage people to think, so, so to build understanding of issues of biodiversity and, and the environment broadly and encourage people to think about those things, think about the challenges that environments around the world are facing. But, but also in addition to the on-site material, we have um, volunteer guides, for example, who, who lead um, walking tours around the site. We have a lot of digital material through through our websites and, and social media and such. So, so there are quite a range of ways that visitors can access information about about Q, about our site, our history, our, our plant collections, about the environment, about threats, about conservation issues. Um, we, we have various festivals um, throughout each year, starting off usually with the Orchid Festival, of course, in, in February, and usually we have a, a focus on a particular country for that festival, and that allows us to really dial up that the sort of um, focus on on. Um, the, the, the special nature of, of those countries, um, for example, the, the next one will focus on Madagascar and, and we, we 
our scientists do a lot of work in Madagascar and we actually have a permanent field station there. And Madagascar is a country that has very significant conservation challenges and, and significant poverty um, as well. So so we are, I guess, through, through doing things like orchid festivals or, or other festivals and events, it, it allows us to, to sort of open the window to, to people to see beyond this site and to really tap into some of the wider understandings and wider global issues and, and hopefully build people's understanding, as I said, and also, where possible, provide people with, with some tools, with some some, some sort of a, ability to make more informed choices or things that, that may have a beneficial effect on, on the world around them. Bex, do you get a lot of people coming up to you and asking you questions if they see you in the garden? Oh, an awful lot of questions get asked. Mostly, where's the loo? But once you've got over that, <laughs> you're, um, and I've only been asked that once today. You know, we, it's a re- you get a really broad range of questions from visitors, and that really shows a broad range of knowledge in the, in the general pu- public. Some people really have, haven't even got the basic concept that we only exist on this planet while there are plants. Mm. And if we don't have plants, then we, we are no longer able to be on this planet. Um, and other people come and ask you incredibly detailed questions um, and you feel like it's uh, your exams from your diploma all over again. But, <laughs> yeah, it's a really, it's a really wide range of, 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 um, of knowledge. And it's, it, I think that's one of the real challenges for Q is knowing at what level to pitch your, um, our interpretation and information because you don't want to patronise people. Um, but equally, you do want to get that basic message across. Well, it's an interesting point. The Association of Leading Visitor Attractions, 2021 visitor figures, four members. Q came out as the second most visited attraction. And you'd seen a 61% increase in visitors compared to 2020. I'm just wondering if that's part of the strategy is, is kind of increasing this visitor uh, number. Or is it more important to you to broaden the type of visitors that are coming to the garden? Or is it both? Well, it, it, it's clearly both. Uh, so, so we've had some very strong visitation over the past few years. Our, our, our sort of um, at, at the peak was 2019, just pre-COVID, when we had a very strong year of visitation. I think we're up to about 2.4 million in that year, with a combination of reasons. Um, we had the Chihuly glass sculptures. We opened the children's garden. Yeah, a, a range of things affecting visitation that year. And then, of course, like everywhere, we, we dropped into the COVID pandemic and and I mean, we, we had to close for about 10 weeks I think it was um, and then when we reopened of course it, it was a, it, it was partial you know we had glass houses closed and cafes closed and, and so on as, as everyone did so 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 the figures of the last few years all I'm got saying they, they were affected by COVID but we are building back very strongly again in terms of overall visitation and, and that's fabulous to see and I must say just looking around the last few weeks, uh, it's really, really pleasing to see the numbers of school pupils back in the gardens, you know, of all ages. Um, particularly this past week, I think, because we're getting close to the end of the year, they seem to you know, they sort of build up to a crescendo almost. Um, but just seeing the, the sort of enjoyment of the site of those of those young people as, as they sort of discover things like walking into the palm house, into the you know the steamy tropics, and 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 experiencing those plants from from the equator and, and the steamy jungles of South American places. I mean, it's just it's great to see how that affects people. I think that's the point. Uh, but absolutely, diversity is another key thing. You know, we, we want to be here for all communities and for all people. Um, 
within the country, within the UK and, and overseas visitors as well. Um, we, we introduced um, just, just as a particular um, individual measure at the start of last year in, in January, we introduced a one pound entry ticket for anyone who was on um, welfare, on, on pension or credit or, or legacy benefits because we, we felt that these may be people for whom the, the entry fee to queue may be a barrier. And we've just been really encouraged with, with how many of those one-pound tickets have been sold um, and how many people have come in on that scheme over the past 18 months. So, And, and we understand other organisations are also picking up that particular model now and, and doing exactly the same thing. Anecdotally, I think you can see a real increase in the diversity of people in the gardens. I think it wouldn't be unfair to say that uh, when I first started, that a large number of visitors were um, elder ladies. And the change is is quite incredible to see. Um, One thing I think that's really lovely, obviously we've had a really great increase in in school in school kids and that and that's lovely and seeing them infused is is something you hope you can spark something for life for them but uh also we've seen a lot more of young people sort of the 18 to 30 year olds i seen there's a big increase in that number and again as diverse as a as a london is other people coming in now and that's a really lovely thing to see uh, it, I think that's a real success. Brilliant. So those are obviously key things that are going to be part of Q's strategy moving forward. What else can we expect from Q in the future? Well, we're, we're as I said, we're pretty busy. So we've got some big plans um, uh, at the moment for, for a couple of quite significant projects. I should say right, right in front of us now and, and recently opened is the extension to the northern end of the Great Broadwalk borders. So we've, we've added an extra 50 metres or so onto those borders um, and particularly with um, featuring plants that are that are well suited to drier conditions so so more drought hardy stuff at that northern end so the, the matched double borders were I think and, and no one has ever proven me wrong when you say they're the longest matched borders there borders in the world if not the universe they are now even longer <laughs> like the brand but um, in terms of other things going on the big project on the planning board at the moment is, is restoration of the palm house and particularly focusing on taking that magnificent Victorian tropical conservatory and turning it into a carbon neutral tropical conservatory, which is, is quite apparent, but buildings like that weren't weren't built to, to, to be low carbon users, but we are we are grasping that challenge and, and looking at using um, sustainable heat sources and such things and, and ways of reducing heat loss from the, the structure itself. So all of that is in the planning phase. At the moment, we're launching into a major fundraising campaign for which the Palm House is, is a really central part. And hopefully, well, in, indeed, we are about to move into construction of a couple of smaller glass houses which will accommodate the stock from the Palm House while the, while the work goes on in there in the coming years. So, so Palm House, carbon neutral Palm House is one of the big projects on our drawing board, as is a new learning centre, which has um, been fully designed. It, it's a very sustainable design. It's, it's passive house rated. It will allow us to, um, to accommodate all of our, our school programs. It, has, it will have laboratories. It has an auditorium. And, and a, it's a really lovely 
bit of design. We, we have, by some measure, the world's biggest schools education program here at Kew, and, and in a normal year we get close to 100,000 pupils coming through our program. So having a purpose-built facility is, is um, well, the surprising thing is that we haven't had one up to this point, but we, we are very much looking forward to that um, going ahead again. We're fundraising for that. We've got about half the funding we need currently, and we're still looking for... Um, philanthropic support looking for donations to allow us to proceed into construction there. So a couple of sort of infrastructure projects where we're doing work or we've got work coming up to decarbonise the heating also for one or two of the other conservatories. But across the site, things as Bex mentioned, the expansion of the Mediterranean garden is a really key thing. We'll continue to, um, I guess, redevelop areas, improve areas. We've got a plan for what we're calling a carbon garden uh, or, or po possibly a climate change garden. We're still debating over the name of it. But it, it's a, it will be a garden where visitors can learn sort of what carbon is, where it can be found in the environment, how does it move around, you know, from photosynthesis through to carbon sequestration. What's the link with climate change? How, how, how does carbon affect the climate and, and what can we do about um, you know, with nature-based solutions and things like that to, to slow the rate of climate change. So this will be done through the through a landscape development. It'll be um, just near the Princess of Wales Conservatory. It's in the planning phase at the moment and, and we'll also be seeking to raise money to allow us to go ahead with that. It will be a beautiful landscape, I should say, as well. Um, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, well, I think one of, you know, it's not always not always that easy, but I think one of our criteria for these any of these things is that there needs to be beauty within it because you know, we, we need to be very careful about how we treat this, this very, very special landscape. So my last question for you both is what plant would you take to a desert island? And I will say it doesn't have to survive on the desert island. It's more of like a your favourite plant kind of thing, but a lot of people do like to give themselves that extra challenge and pick one that will also survive. Over to you first, Bex. I think I'd like to take an artichoke because Ooh. you can have artichokes in Spanish style, obviously still on holiday here in my head, uh, <laughs> which is absolutely my favourite thing in the world to eat. Um, the very young green artichoke heads. But you can also have cardo from the leaves, like the cardoon leaf uh, for the winter. And uh, obviously the flower is stunning as well. Great. I, I hear artichoke dips really good as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll be doing the full range of artichoke. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'll be coming to yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard, what about you? Okay. Now, you did give us the out clause, which says that they, they don't necessarily have to be well suited to growing on a desert island. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that with both hands and say... <laughs> There is a rather lovely large eucalyptus tree that I'm looking at at my window. It's Eucalyptus dalrymphaliana. And what it does, apart from being a beautiful tree to look at, it provides shade, which on the desert island I suspect may be quite handy. Yeah. The firewood is very, very good for, for cooking and, and just generally warming yourself. So it gives you firewood. And it's just... It's just a beautiful tree to, you know, when the wind blows through it, it has a sound to it and and it, uh, it, it's just a spectacular tree. So I rather think it would be a balm for my spirits if I was marooned on a desert island while I counted away the days until the 
the rescue ship came along. Or if it didn't go along, I'd just enjoy sitting under the tree. <laughs> perfect, perfect. One is kind of healing your spirit and soul and one is looking after your stomach. I like I like the two. <laughs> I think my soul might be in my stomach. I think mine is too. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> Well, thank you both so much for coming on. That's been so interesting to hear a bit more about what's going on at Q and what you've kind of got planned for the future. Lots of really exciting things coming up. So we'll keep our eyes and ears peeled. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure from, from this end of things. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm Rachel Forsyth and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. Huge thank you again to Richard and Bex and goodbye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.